I'm going to begin this episode with a not very philosophical question. It's this. What's the best hybrid pairing for a zombie story? Is it a zombie comedy like in Zombieland, that film that you may well have seen? How about a zombie romance? There's a book and a film called Warm Bodies, which is a pretty good execution of that, if you didn't believe it was possible. Or how about a more sort of silly meta zombie story which pokes fun at the genre? I thought I might be watching one of those last night. I stuck on um, Army of the Dead, the new Zack Snyder film. I think it was less meta than I expected. But anyway, to get to the point, to relate this to the story we're going to cover on the episode, it's actually possible for a story to be all those three hybrid models I just listed and still be good. And that's exactly the story we're going to be doing today in this episode. It's Flower of the Other Shore by Atre. Uh, we'll get more onto that later, as per usual. First thing we're going to do is the Church of Fake News, the translated Chinese fiction news. So three items today, although really it's just two. The pretty much traditional one news item which relates to Ch uh, Chinese sci-fi, because there is one of those today. Um, something about the academic world, and then a meta piece of news. Appropriately enough, we're doing meta news, news about this show, this show reporting on itself. So the first news item, like I said, it's Chinese sci-fi. It's about Hao Jingfang's Vagabonds, which we've covered on this show. And the episode I did on that, um, I talked to its translator, Ken Liu. So great news for uh, Hao Laoshu and Ken Liu. They're, well, I say their book. Yeah, I guess it is. The, the English translation, Vagabonds, has been nominated for the 2020 Arthur C. Clarke Award. Let's see which books it's sitting alongside, shall we? The Infinite by Patience Agbabi. I suspect I'm going to possibly uh, be pronouncing a few of these names wrong. So, The Infinite by Patience Agbabi. The Vanished Birds by Simon Jimenez. Could be Jimenez, but I suspect not. <laughs> Maybe Jimenez. Don't know. Next one is, is, is our book, in quotes, uh, Vagabonds by Hao Jingfang. The next one, Edge of Heaven by R.B. Kelly. And after that, The Animals in That Country, Laura Jean Mackay. And last of all, Chilling Effect, Valerie Valdez. And interestingly enough, uh, the publishers of each of these books are list listed in quotes. And we have at least two which are UK presses. Uh, Patience Agbabi's book, The Infinite, was published by Canongate. They're based in Edinburgh, in my home country, Scotland. But the thing I, that jumped out at me is uh, Vagabonds, their publisher is listed as Head of Zeus. But if you're buying the book in the States, you'll be getting it, I think, from Simon & Schuster. And they were my point of contact setting up uh, the, the interview, or at least the, re the review copy that I read before interviewing Ken. So perhaps Head of Zeus were the ones who bought the translation rights and handled it at the first off? Perhaps not? Or maybe Arthur C. Clarke googled the book and they got Head of Zeus first. I don't know. Just thought that was interesting. Uh, anyway, we should crack on and get to the next piece of news. So this is about... Um, the new journal, which the Lead Center for Chinese Writing has launched. Um, so they, they've solicited a call for papers. I guess I should read that after I read the info about the journal itself. So they, they're they called the Lead Center for New Chinese Writing. Their journal is the writing, it's just called Writing Chinese Journal. No, it's not. It's called Writing Chinese, a journal of contemporary Sinophone literature. That's what it is. So I'll just read you the text that they've got to sort of introduce it. Here it is. 
Our journal showcases the latest peer-reviewed academic research on contemporary Chinese language literature and its translation and global reception, alongside features on practitioners. The combination of academic articles and practice-based notes provides a platform for, and facilitates dialogue between, both primary and secondary actors in the field. A key objective of our journal is to engage directly with scholarship in East Asia, and to this end, one section in each issue features newly commissioned English translations of the latest Chinese language research. This journal is proud to be entirely open access. And oh yeah, their, their uh, call for papers is, they has a, like a short summary of it here, so I'll just read that. Call for papers July 2021. We are delighted to share the first call for papers from Writing Chinese Journal. Uh, I've shortened that. Alongside submissions received in response to this call for papers, the inaugural issue will also include keynotes from Professor Bonnie S. McDougall and renowned poet, academic, and translator Shi Tuan. Very nice. I, I did shorten that slightly, and there is a fuller version on the site you can read as well. And yeah, you should just check that out. It looks pretty cool. Right, so onto the meta news now. The news about this show. Just two small dumb things. One is sad, one is happy. So I'll start with the sad news. So if you've been listening for a while, you'll know that I have a feed on the Chinese podcast site Shimalaya for way, a way for people to access the show if they don't have a VPN, basically. And that was working fine. I had been clever about which episodes to sort of disguise slightly in their description. But now the censors have properly spotted the show because lots of the episodes have been taken down. It seems like any episodes which do not offend the censor, which is maybe like two thirds of them are still up and they may it may still be possible to get them up. I'm not going to give up just yet. I think my rule will be I'll keep uploading them, let the censors do what they will, whatever. Um, if the whole feed is taken down, you know, that's a shame, but I'm not going to change my behavior to accommodate the censor, which is why I'm talking about this. Even if this creates a chance this episode might get taken down, if I police myself <laughs> according to the oppressive laws of a country that I don't even live in anymore, then really that's a sad state of affairs, isn't it? What I am going to try and do is find an another sort of channel that will get the episodes behind the firewall. Um, don't know what that would be though, because um, I'm looking for something where it can't be struck down. Um, but I don't know what that would be. It would ideally be something which has its servers and company well outside of the PRC, but which is not blocked in the PRC. But that really, I mean, that slims the options down a lot, doesn't it? I'll have to, I'll have to see if that's even possible. But yeah, that that's the sad news. Onto the happy piece of meta news. So I made, I made three stupid little uh, attempts at memes, little funny, um, don't know what you call them, like parody book covers or. Yeah, I don't know if parody is the right word. There's probably a better word, but like jokey covers for um, three translated Chinese books. One was the three body problem, but I changed it into the three birdie problem and put uh, the three legendary birds from Pokemon Red and Blue and Yellow on it. And then there was another one, which was uh, Legend of the Condor Heroes, but I swapped out the C for a G, so it became Gondor Heroes. One of them, the, the three body one, that found a bit of success on Twitter. But there was one other meme I made that it just blew up. Um, I did put a bit more effort into it, to be fair, but it was like a... I won't quite explain how it works, because then why would you go and look for it yourself? But um, it's a mashup of Harry Potter and Lu Shun. 
and that did way better than I expected. So there's a, a link if you want to see that image if you've not seen it already in the show notes. It's also on the show's uh, Instagram page, which is, uh, it's just at Trichific, T-R-C-H-F-I-C uh, on Twitter. If you scroll down through my <laughs> my tweets, you'll find it pretty quickly. I'm at Angus Likes Words. Okay, that will be all for the news. So enough of my talking about very stupid matters. Let's get on to very literary matters and begin the interview with Schwetting Nee, Schwetting Christine Nee, about Flower of the Other Shore by Ashwa. So on the show, we have Schwetting Nee. Schwetting, how's it going and what have you been up to? Hello, Angus. I'm very well, thank you. Uh, it's it's going well. So the lockdown restrictions have uh, lifted now, but we haven't really been going out much yet. So, so apart from the day job and um, putting the finishing touches on Synopticon, um, I've been catching up on some uh, Chinese TV series um, and on some reading for pleasure. And I know people say that lockdown you know you're supposed to have plenty of free time more free time than usual during lockdown but that's not <laughs> what I found um I think I've been yeah really quite busy over the last um year and a half yeah I know the feeling I suppose when everyone is has the option to be online all the time people other people might assume that you're always available I've not been hit too bad by that but yeah I resonate with that I felt very free in the strange restricted way the lockdown felt sort of liberating you know not being obliged to go outside but that feeling faded pretty quickly here we are a year plus later doesn't doesn't feel there's no tingle of something different and exciting anymore it's just sort of it's it's reality it's normality (laughs) yeah i think when it happened it was oh there's a the epidemic has become a pandemic and we might have to go into lockdown and then it was March 2020, wasn't it, that it happened and you kind of thought, oh, can't believe this is really happening. It's like being a movie. And then, oh, it would only be a few months, uh, maybe six months. And I think it was kind of new, kind of um, very, an incredible experience to begin with. But then it just, yes. I think it's becoming a little bit normalised working from home and staying indoors. And for any listeners wondering which particular iteration of lockdown we're talking about, it's uh, lockdown in the UK. We're both in England right now. I think I'm a, I'm in Cheshire these days. Should warn listeners and yourself, sweating the house I've moved to is both next to a railway and under the flight path of Manchester Airport. So if you hear any rumbling or whooshing that that's what that is i've gone from being next to an airbase in fife scotland to uh to transit oh there's a plane now to transit routes in england and you're down in uh, london if i've understood that right that's right yes i mean hertfordshire yes right. i'm very glad to i i moved out i pretty much uh after coming to uk i've been living in london sort of in the city or um in the suburbs and I moved out into Hertfordshire um, recently and I'm very glad to have done that I think because it made lockdown a lot more bearable there's lots of green space 
around me. There's lots of open space, lots of parks and woods. It's nice to go for a walk in um, and nice to get out in the open for exercise um, when one can. Um, yeah, so you, I'm surprised to hear that you're under a railway bridge and near the airport because your equipment must be really, really good because I'm not hearing anything. Oh, that's good. Any noise. Um, I am, I'm sort of shielded from the window and I'm in a, a, a corner and it's just a railway, not a railway bridge. And I am, I am shielded oh, by I a see. house. You might hear if a freight train <laughs> comes through, then you might really, uh, really hear it. But uh, my, my moaning and whining aside, funnily enough, we did mention a couple of things there somewhat related to our story for this episode. We mentioned, well, apocalyptic situations. We mentioned feeling like you're living in a movie, which is strangely relevant to the story more than listeners might expect, although we're not going to reveal entirely why. And um, an escape from the city to leafier pastures, that's sort of in the story too, in many ways, actually. The story's uh, Flower of the Other Shore by Atra, and it's in that book you mentioned, Synopticon. But before we um, start talking about Synopticon, can I, you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself? Uh, so I write about Chinese culture from all kinds of angles um, with a focus on contemporary and pop culture, although I also write a lot about how tradition um, feeds into this uh, traditional culture and classical culture. I also translate literature, uh, which is why I'm on this podcast, my new book, <laughs> for my new book, Synopticon. Um, so yes, that is, so I've been uh, writing about Chinese culture since about 2010. Um, and my last book was published in 2018 uh, called From Guanyin to Chairman Mao, An Essential Guide to Chinese Deities. Uh, I see what you did there in the title. Right, yes. It was uh, it's, it's actually a title that was suggested by the publishers. Ah, right. Okay. Um, and it's it's a cool title, bit of a mouthful, but in a way, it reflects the approach that the book takes, um, giving a brief history of each deity in the socio-cultural context, and then bringing bringing it into the contemporary observations and influences and um, impact of the deity sounds really cool what you're saying about Thank the you. title being a mouthful um my, my sort of brief stint in um book publishing i learned just why uh, or one reason just why non-fiction books often have those great big long titles it's because you can get us the subtitle as well as your main title and that's really good for hitting keywords or keywords i should say not keywords which um, if you're selling books on Amazon, you really want those because you want to show up in the search results. Not saying that's the an editor's only priority there, but um, when you're in, when I was in the shoes of trying to make the books beat the other books in the search results, the the long title becomes strangely tempting. Oh, that's interesting. Yes, that's a good neat neat trick. Uh huh. Yeah, you you can kind of see it in um, some Amazon products, not maybe more so in other things like physical. What am I trying to say? Non-bookish products, um, where they'll they'll put an absolute mash of words into the item's name, 
and it's just to game game the system. But we should probably not talk too much about Amazon. I think they get enough um, thought devoted to them. I think what we should devote our thoughts to is Synopticon first, um, as sort of laying the groundwork to talk about Atwe's uh, short story, Flower Veil or yeah. Shore. So it is um, an anthology of translated Chinese science fiction, and you're the translator and you're the, the editor. So there's some other books out there which are sort of similar. The two that listeners, or the one maybe the listeners might be thinking of is uh, Ken Leo's Invisible Planets and his, um, I don't know if you call it a follow-up, but his other book he put together like that, Broken Stars. And my hipster one that I'm always trying to pick up on the show is the Columbia University Press and Chinese University of Hong Kong's slightly yes. more academic um, or slightly more well, it's, it's more collaborative, isn't it? Because it's not one translator. They've got one called um, The Reincarnated, Reincarnated Giant. Giant. Yeah. yeah, that's an interesting sort of patchwork approach that sets it apart from your book and Kent's because there's lots of translators, lots of styles. Yeah. So yeah, what I wanted to ask you after that long waffle is where does your book or the, yeah, I'll say your book, where does it sit in relation to them in your own sort, from your own point of view? Uh, first of all, I've read a lot of the stories from those anthologies. Um, I got a chance to read most of them, the later ones, after I'd handed in my first draft uh, last year. So, uh, and I really enjoy them. They're great stories and great collections. Uh, this anthology, however, was really, it's very much its own thing and hasn't really really been conceived in comparison to any of the other books or in as a reaction to um, the other anthologies. I've always been interested in China's genre fiction, uh, not just sci-fi, but other types of genre fiction. And I saw the beginnings of the, the industries of these genre fiction in the 2000s and I saw it maturing um, later in the decade, but it really took about 10 years before I could get anybody to listen to me. Right. Yes. So it's not just science fiction, but um, things like animation, there's um, comics, uh, there's suspense, thrillers and horror and wuxia, other types of fantasy, historical epics, and all of these cool things out there. So in terms of translation, I mean, if you talk to some, say, American male translators, they might tell you that when they, you know, the reason they started translating is because they saw a professional piece of translation done quite badly. But for me, um, going from Chinese to English has always been a bit like second nature, really. Mm. Um, as someone who was born in China, in Guangzhou, and was then transplanted in the UK at a young age. It's sort of like everything in my life was part of that process of translation, translation of culture, not just language. And I suppose the other thing is, back in the 80s, my mother was, a, was an interpreter. All right, cool. And it was a huge thing back then back then and when I was little I thought it was the height of Sino-English interaction <laughs> <laughs> yeah I thought yeah 
it was so cool. She met all these interesting people from, you know, the outside and brought back all these interesting things, interesting objects. And as I grew up, I wanted to take this further into literary translation. But now I actually find that my cultural insights have become far more important, especially now and in the last decade, when China is becoming more economically more powerful. But culturally, people still don't really understand it. There are some, there are some who try to present a simplistic view, but it's actually a very complex place with a complex history and development, especially in the modern times. And understanding China requires a lot of um, contextualizing. So for me, it's never been about just just about sci-fi, but all that's contemporary and amazing that's coming out of China. I share your, um, what's the word, Um, interest in genre fiction and the sort of desire to push it a little bit more front and center in the people's minds, um, not just in relation to China, just in, in general. I think I'm on team genre fiction for sure. Great to have you on the team. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe not dogmatically so, but um, if I had to pick team genre fiction all the way. I mean, I think the, jo- I think the genres really blend into each other a lot more, blur into each other a lot more than the boundaries between literary and genre fiction is not that clear cut to me anyway. Mm-hmm, for sure. And as well as blending the, the boundary between what's in quote marks literary and what's genre-y, um, as well as that being a blurred boundary, I think there is a, as we're going to see in this story, a blurred or hard to demarcate boundary between the different genres Um and also, I think what yeah. form those genres take, whether they are really pulpy, whether they're the, they, they are the silly thing that the literary fiction uh, academic in their tower, if, if they have, they might have a very, they might have a, an yeah. idea of genre fiction that it's pulp, it's silly, it's slowbrow. And us on team genre fiction might say, actually, it can be just as deep and subversive and clever and worthy of attention as literary fiction and i think the reality is genre fiction does all those things often all at once in one story and i think there's an argument to be made that's kind of a description of flower of the shore it's got some quite insightful moments and lots of other more playful dare i say it pulpy moments as as we're going to see as we get into it and we i was I was going to say we we might end up absolutely scratching our heads about what genre it even is because this is a a kohan a Chinese sci-fi collection. But if you, if I was handed this story out of this context, I wouldn't call it. I wouldn't have called it sci-fi. I probably would have called it horror or even action. Not that I read much action fiction, if that's even a genre. But that's there. To, or you could call it a love story as well. All these things work. Oh yeah, it's it's definitely. Um crosses genres it's interesting that it's interesting you say you wouldn't consider it sci-fi not if i had to pick one genre i would probably pick horror because i'll just I'll, I'll say it now it might be getting ahead of ourselves it's kind of a zombie story it is a zombie story that's right so last question about synopticon it's got a fuller title as well we're talking about titles and subtitles so the the title that's on the cover is synopticon and then the colon introduces the subtitle, A Celebration of Chinese Science Fiction. So I wanted to ask you if we just, what can I say, if, if we break it down possibly past the point of common sense, um, do the A Celebration of Chinese Fiction tell us anything about sort of your vision 
for what you were trying to do with this anthology or is it just something that uh, editors wanted in there to help keyword the book? Name with Synopticon is definitely an intentional name, titling. Essentially, it's a cool word and it means uh, a viewpoint from mm. China. And with this anthology, I really aim to present as wide range, a range of subject matter and styles as possible of science fiction within the last renaissance, i.e. the last 30 years, showing the history of it, kinds of stories that maybe authors were writing 30 years ago and the kind that they're writing now. Um, and, And I also aim to feature some authors that haven't broken the popularity um, thing, popularity barrier, maybe you could say, in in English translation. So Synoptic, I'd say Synopticon isn't just sci-fi, it's China, it's viewpoints from China, uh, really. Right. Then the celebration, um, I suppose that's a demonstration that it's not a... A collection aimed to is not a collection aimed to uh, with a narrative to show it a particular literary movement or and it's not a best of anthology. It is really a medley to show the great stories, the great contemporary stories that are coming out of this genre out of Kuan. Yeah, that's great. It's not a million miles away from one thing I try to do on this podcast, which is just say. Look, these are these are fun. You don't have to. Um, you, it's great to re- view them through particular lenses, but first take a look at the story itself and and just enjoy it, and then you can overthink it later. I think um, Ken Leo says a somewhat similar thing in uh, his intro to Invisible Planets. Um, just take mm-hmm. it on its own terms, at least at least first. I and I would I would tend to agree. That's right. So that's why I've provided some short guides to each story. This was something that I discussed with the editors and my publishers, but I wanted to have those guides at the back of each story instead of in front as an introduction so that in that way they still provide some context to some background to the authors and context of the place and environment, cultural environment the story is coming out of. But after the story is read and so the readers can just read the story as it is um, without any influence from me or from the publishers first. And then they, yeah. if they want to find out more about it, then they can read the, the story guide afterwards. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a perfect way to do it on, on your part and the editors for, for listening to you. And I, I, sh- I should also say, I, I thought they were particularly good in another way in that they're they're not too long either. So you're not leaving too much of a sort of the translators or editors footprint. They're just, just right. They're not too short either. And they don't, uh, they explain helpfully and they never really sort of over explain or, or feel didactic. So as a reader, I, I, I thought they were really good. I know I've, I've heard other translators say, uh, I don't want to over explain, leave a million footnotes, um, add my own words to, to the text. But that sort of, to, to my mind, that's a sort of, um, all or nothing framing where it's either leave no mark and that's ideal or leave a heavy mark and explode. Whereas actually, if you, if you're clever, if you find a way to get a little bit of both or or navigate the the translator's dilemma, 
in the clever way that you did in this book doesn't have to be a dilemma. You can you can both serve you can serve the reader in a nice minimal helpful way. It's a question of like what's the word? Uh, no, the word's not coming. But yeah, I, I appreciated them. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I, I absolutely I agree with that. Mm. Uh, there, there's a place for foot. There's a time for footnotes, and a little bit of explanation helps. Yeah, um, but maybe not not a massive amount. That, for sure. That's, Bog down the reader, but um, um, I thought of the word I was okay. going to say. It was dexterity. Dexterity is a, or that sort of ability is a way to break through those th- dilemmas. So, yeah, I like that word. Yeah, it's a good word. Good word for writers and editors and word- wordsmiths, I think. Right. Next question before I start talking about writing for an hour. Um, it's about the stories in Synopticon. So I said, I asked the last question about the book. Totally not true. There's two more. Um, the first one's about internationalism, <laughs> something, uh, one of my favorite isms, specifically about the names in the book, or at least that's the jump off point. So again, thinking back to the three other books I read and a lot of translated uh, Chinese fiction I've read, I don't recall running into a lot of um, both foreign characters, or I should say foreign is a loaded yeah. word, non-Chinese characters. <laughs> Or characters who have a non-Chinese name. There's 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 not so many. There are some, but like I can't think of so many. And in Synopticon, there's quite a diversity of, of names. There's quite a lot of characters who maybe their nationality or their ethnicity isn't specified, or maybe it is, but there's plenty of non-Han Chinese names in there. And maybe I'm just maybe I look too hard for these things. But I wanted to ask you, is that a product of your intention to seek out sort of diverse stories and get a very broad perspective or is it just some something or sorry I, sh- I should say is it an intentional result of that or is it a natural result of that or something else I think it's a natural result really I did have the intention of seeking out diverse stories in terms of um, style and tone and content um, but the names they're just part and parcel of Chinese writing really my criteria for for selection for the collection was is the story good is it enjoyable is it well written um and probably contrary to a lot of conception perceptions of China Chinese isn't the only everyday language in China there there's lots of um English in all sorts of things um shop names products, English romanizations of Chinese terms. It's, it's this thing, it's this idea that what is foreign is cool. It's like Europeans and Westerners, you know, many like to wear t-shirts with Japanese characters or Chinese characters in them. You don't even have to make sense. It just looks cool. And for the Chinese, it's something similar, but reverse. So it is part of, you know, the English language is part of their everyday too, as well as Chinese. Mm. Um, two very silly thoughts popped into my mind as you were answering that question. One is on, my, my favorite phoneticized foreign name in Chinese is uh, Harry Styles. And I w- rather than saying it, I'll just say to the listeners, if, uh, if this stuff isn't obvious to you, maybe if you're um, sort of new to the world of Chinese and English and how they interact. Uh, pop on, pop onto Harry Styles' Wikipedia page, 
uh, switch to the Chinese language version and teach yourself his name in Mandarin. It, maybe this is silly, but it, it, uh, I like that one a lot. Uh, the other one was what you said about sort of how these languages coexist, even if it's not correctly, even if it's gibberish, just spelled using the, the characters. Um, yeah, I have a nice a nice uh, example of that because yeah, you're right. Um, if you live in a country where people wear super dry clothes, you'll see um, Japanese walking through any town center on some man's chest. But it's not, as, as I learned, you, you really can't trust that to mean anything. Um, I suppose you'd always expect that, but I had it confirmed when we had um, at my school, we had, um, well, long story short, I was in a UN, uh, my school entered in a UN competition. I was in the team. And what that cashed out to was we had exchange visitors from Japan who then we, we visited. Uh, oh, how nice. Think, yeah, it was great. I think we visited them first, then they came over. So we were taking our, our new pals through Dundee City Centre and we walked by, I think it was H&M. And H&M had this T-shirt in the window, which I thought were kind of retro and cool at the time. It was white and it had the Rolling Stones 40 licks lips and tongue in sort of a rainbow pattern. I suppose that doesn't have the meaning it would have now. Um, different times um but alongside that kind of funky rainbow skull it had skull sorry lips it had um i wouldn't have known the difference between japanese and chinese at the time but it was japanese and our um our um, exchange student friends sort of stopped did a double take and started to laugh and we asked them does it say something awful is it a practical joke and they said no it's gibberish it literally doesn't mean anything we can't even tell you what it means because it's just a mash together of God knows what yeah. characters. And it wasn't a shock, to be honest, because it's just confirming a suspicion that it's the equivalent of someone getting like Neo Romian tattooed on his arm. It's just yes. there for the aesthetic. The famous bad tattoos. Yes. <laughs> Always get its sense checked before yeah. you have it permanently um, tattooed on your arm or leg. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they look cool. I mean, that's that's the thing. They probably don't mean anything, but they look mm -hmm. cool. Actually, I the main point I wanted to make was actually um, science fiction is about exploring things that are beyond the boundaries of um, time, space, uh, reality, or you know, you know, certainly national borders. So mm. um, for them to for for the Chinese writers to limit themselves to limit themselves to a setting of China, it wouldn't it would kind of defeat the purpose of a speculative um type of writing for sure and it's i think in plenty of stories in in your book and elsewhere i've read uh, translating ch translated chinese sci-fi stories there'll be some characters where you feel like they've kind of sorry some characters some authors who have sort of assumed that the status quo of a world made of nation states built around basically ethnic categories is going to continue like that's one criticism someone could level at a lot of the three body problem but there's plenty other stories probably a majority actually where it's sort of left ambiguous or we're not so far in the future where it's a question but in the far future yeah there is a sort of a cultural or just linguistic ambiguity that the author doesn't over explain which to me seems to be sort of the right way to do it because how would you know what mankind's going to look like X number of hundred or thousand years, what things will survive, what things will become irrelevant, what things will blur or reconfigure themselves. And yeah, it's it's nice that yes, some of the authors don't, don't try and lecture to us or over over explain their their own 
creative vision? Yes, uh, we don't know. Nobody knows. That's why this um, science fiction genre is so exciting in that, mm-hmm. it, you know, we try to imagine what it might be like. Yeah. I'm going to keep us moving. Uh, last question. This is actually the last question about the book as a whole. It's about yeah. the question of taste, which I think we've kind of, we've already definitely talked about tastes and preferences. So another question on that theme. Now, I'm, I'm not actually going to ask you to name a favourite or rank the stories because that's not fair at all. Um, but I, I think I can safely ask you, are there any stories or authors from the collection who aren't Ashwe and aren't Fire of the Other Shore that you'd like to just sort of... Um, fly the flag for for our listeners that I don't know you could enthuse about I think it wouldn't be fair for me to talk about any authors as a favorite it would be like asking me who's your favorite child you know um this and they're so they're also different so can't really compare like for like I really enjoyed translating them all some stories are not so not such an easy read but I thought it was important to have them there for all sorts of reasons. I mean, for example, I really enjoy translating, working on The Last Safe. It's a work where storytelling and science are blended in very well. And it features just one um, type of technology and the impact of that technology is omniscient. And yet the story is very much focused on the everyday life on the individual that this technology has impacted mm. on. So that's really interesting. That's a, you know, exploration, a demonstration that science fiction doesn't have to be always about, you know, interplanetary explorations, interplanetary journeys, or kind of um, galactic wars or whatever, survival, you know, survival epics or disaster tales. But then there are stories in, in the collection that are at the other end of the scale, like Starship Library, which, which has a ginormous span in terms of time and distance in, in that it crosses planets and millions of years. And perhaps appropriately, one's the first story in the collection, one's the last. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, it's about... It's about so many things on the grand scale, but also about learn about the process of learning um, something that transcends different planets and civilizations. And there's so much quirky humor in it that reminds me a lot of British sci-fi that I really love. So I really liked working on that one. Mm. I really liked working on Maestje Met de Peril. Please excuse me, any Dutch speakers. <laughs> Yeah, all five of them are fuming right now. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed that story because I'm a big fan of classical music and European traditional classical painting. And it was really nice to be able to translate a story with, um, a feature, you know, with a sci-fi principle in it that has time tra- travel, but also I get to translate a story. It also features um, Bach's music and Dutch paintings, and also the, the, the descriptions of Chinese cooking were just a delight to, to work on. So they're all very different. And um, I think for readers, I think they should just look at the 
table of contents and pick what whatever they fancy and go with it really i i had had thoughts about especially those first two you mentioned they both reminded me of some other chinese sci-fi i've read out there the last save reminded me of quite a lot of the stories that the london chinese science fiction group have covered a little reading group that oh, runs, interesting. I think, mon- yeah, monthly. I I think I might have missed a meeting or two while I've been moving house. But um, a lot of the short stories they cover have a sort of a similar, a similar vibe. You could, if you were um, looking for a, a, com- a comparison, an easy comparison to file them under, mm-hmm. like sort of Black Mirror esque. Uh, you can see this in some of Shadja's stories as well, where you have sort of a, a piece of technology which is kind of innocuous, maybe a little bit smartphone esque that completely transforms the ways people live in in black mirror it's usually for the absolutely for the worst but in a lot of these short chinese sci-fi stories i've read it's a bit more ambiguous um it could be on balance better or worse depending on one's preferences as a person so that's that's what that one sort of reminded me of in in a in a good way for sure and then what you were saying about starship library how it transcends or it's not transcends how it covers such a crazy scale of time and yeah. space and how it there's a sort of a theme of keeping a torch going for humanity. That reminded me of some of the stuff I liked most about the three-body problem, the stuff that really moved me. For all the kind of um, grim stuff that's in those books and maybe cynical <laughs> calculations about what humans are like, there's a real sincerity there as well, I felt. And I felt it without all the grimness, with a bit of humor in Starship Library. So that that one was one of my faves in the book, because as well as being a very gentle story, it stirred something in me. And I'm sure your translation helped that. So I would enthuse about those two, but especially Starship Library as well. Great. A really great one. It's a really interesting point that pertains to Chinese storytelling in general. Because Chinese stories don't tend to have happy endings. They just don't. Whether it's um, whatever the genre, whatever the medium, um, from historical times to contemporary times, they just don't have happy endings. Um, But I am finding that in contemporary Chinese science fiction, which I guess is reflected in, in my book, that there is a sense of transcendence very often at the end of a story. And I find this very interesting because, in a way, it shows um, Chinese writers reclaiming um, the Sino-Futurist viewpoint, which was, by and large, created um, by those who are who were outside of the Sinophone sphere. Um, the idea of this um, tech-fueled, nightmarish dystopia. So it's interesting that Chinese writers are reclaiming um, this term and making a creating different strands of Sino-Futurism for themselves. So in a lot of the stories in my collection, a lot of the stories in my collection address issues that are perhaps not, not the most easy to address. And certainly bad things happen in the story. But in the end, there is a sense of hope um, that, you know, after humanity has gone in um, quite destructive and, and tropic sort of directions. After all that, um, perhaps we can rethink and perhaps there can be a brighter future. Um, There's a sense of hope and a sense that we can move beyond the nightmares. And even sometimes um, when when 
we're in the middle of those nightmares, there are some people with clearer minds um, who are more self-aware, who can see that things need to change. And so this is why when I was discussing the concept of the cover design and then later refining it with my publishers and the illustrator, I emphasized I wanted an uplifting feel to the art. I, I realize we could probably stay on this topic for a long time as well, but shall we shall we venture over um, to the other shore and leave the other stories behind them? <laughs> nice one. Yeah. Thank you. I definitely had not got that written in advance. It's definitely it definitely wasn't on a piece of paper in front of me. Um, so yeah, Flower of the Other Shore by Atre, who is our our author for for this episode. Um, I thought uh, I've been it's something I've been doing in recent episodes where me, the host who read this story weeks ago, is going to try and summarize maybe not the plot because we don't want to spoil stuff for this one. The plot's important, but I'll try and summarize like the premise and maybe like the first act where things are going. And if there's if you feel I've missed anything really uh, key, then you can um, jump in afterwards. So the setting is somewhat ambiguous, but we're in the near future. Seems like we might be in the USA somewhere, but we can't say that for certain. Our main character feels like we have um, a Chinese main character who was once alive and is now a zombie, and he's seems to be in the majority, at least in the city he's in, a city populated by the undead. And we start out, he's got a bit of an itch on the back of his shoulder and he's hanging out on a, a sort of a bay. It's a very interesting, powerful, I don't know, eerie place to put zombies on a bay. Uh, the only other time I can think I've seen that was in Game of Thrones. And there's just something I love about <laughs> zombies on a bay. I, maybe because that's the edge of the world for them because they can't swim. Maybe that's it. But um, he's he's there with old Jim talking about vaguely about what they've been up to, how they have a hunger they can't get rid of, and how this virus called an English translation, the necronavirus, has swept across the world. And as the plot develops, that itch in our main character's shoulder, whose name I really need. Do we no, we don't we don't get a name, do we? Or he thinks he ha- he um, thinks he remembers a name later. I think we can say that, can't that's we? That's right. Yes. Yeah, so it's very much I zombie for the half of the story, and then he remembers, or he thinks he remembers without spoiling anything, that yeah. his name is Hui yeah, in the middle a, of the story. A glimmer of a past life, um, I think we can safely say, with yeah, Hui, a Chinese name. And as as these memories are sort of dancing just off just outside of his the range of his mind's eye, he's um, the itch in his back is turning into a flower, and we realize there's something very important about this flower that could change a lot of things. And I suppose around the same time, he he meets a girl. I I won't say more than that, other than like he meets a girl, zombie meets living girl. Um, an interesting story ensues. At the same time, another important thread of the plot is that the humans aren't all dead there's a sort of a, a turf war going on between these um undead in the city and a very i think we can safely say a very american style gung-ho um meathead infantry and i guess they have some vehicles as well but they're it's if you can picture just a load of sort of video game type machine gun wielding guys lining up and blasting at these zombies who are trying to eat them there's that 
So there's all sorts of different tones in the story. And my feeling is in a bad writer's hands, they would jar and it would feel dumb, but they're weaved together in a really smart, you could maybe sometimes call it postmodern, but not always way. There's a lot of riffing on Hollywood traditions and maybe just cinematic traditions, but for reasons I can't fully disclose, Hollywood (laughs) is a presence in the story. And if readers want to know why I'm amused by that, they should read the story. Um, Do you think that's a decent summary or should should we fill in any, any other gaps? I think that's wonderful. That's great. Thank you. It it really, I think it's really piquing the reader's interest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not intentional, but it's just a sign of a good story. It's so easy to do that. Um, so yeah, yeah it shows than, you like the story. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so rather than trying to tease things on and on and on, I think we'll be able to talk about the story through some deeper questions um and that will continuously tease the readers on other levels um so first question it's about intertextuality now if any listeners did not go and do undergraduate literature at uni that's uh that's a big word for a simple thing when a story or a piece of media references other pieces of stories Uh, a really good way to think about it perhaps a sort of millennium surfing the web way to think of it is hyperlinks between the stories if there's like if there's a moment when the main character thinks oh this is just like 28 days later think of that as a link on a web page that connects this story with the film 28 days later so or if, if you want another easier way just referencing referencing to other texts which can create a sort of a meta feel that it's a a story not just about events but a story about stories and I, I just like wanted the to... hyperlinks version. I love that. Yeah, it's got that sort of retro, sort of, you know, hackers <laughs> kind of feel to it, which I think should come back since we've all been living online. So I wanted yeah, to ask you, as the translator, how do you, in what interesting ways for you, does the story plug into other genre, other media? Because you mentioned as well as genres you're interested in, media <laughs> coming from from China and other just styles. Like I said, like there's a lot of sincerity there's a lot of uh, absurdity and the last question was what we mentioned before is this even sci-fi people with too much time on their hands could i think get into a really big argument about that yeah great i think they i hope they read the story and argue away um <laughs> <laughs> i think we talked about a bit about this before is it i mean is it sci-fi first of all i would say that it is sci-fi perhaps the there are definitely so there are definitely MacGuffins that Archer uses. Mm. He definitely there is science that he's made up. Um, sorry, my cats are trying to get in. Um, zombie cats. Zombie cats. So definitely MacGuffins that he uses in different points of the story, although they're not like the main focus. So I would call it science fiction, maybe soft science fiction. But is it, is it just sci-fi? No, it's um, it can be so many other things. It can be seen as so many other things. It's a horror story, um, although there's a lot of black comedy, mm. um, humour. It is a romance and a love story. It is a point of view kind of narrative uh, because we're getting a very unusual narrator who is dead. Um, so... Then, yeah, it's horror, it's a romance, um, and there are certain 
parts of it that's like like a diary or maybe like a uh, uh, thriller elements to it um, at certain points when when there's a big there are big plot changes and fight scenes so it is so many things and it is a testament of Archer's great Archer's skills as a writer that he's woven all these disparate elements together into one story I really wanted to work with Archer and I was going to translate one of his other stories um, about a robot originally but he sent me this one as well saying that it's one of his new ones. Um, do I want to have a read? I started reading it and finished it really quickly, even though it was 40 to 50,000 words in, in Chinese. Um, and I, once I finished it, I wanted to translate it straight away. I wanted to, I knew that's the one I wanted to translate. Oh yeah, and the other genre that we, the very obvious one, it's, it's a zombie story, of course. <laughs> zombie story as well and I would call it I would give it a different name um, a sang shi story sang shi is um, the Chinese term for zombie um, sang meaning dead uh, to mourn mourning or dead and shi is corpse and and this is not to be confused and it's, it's distinct from jiang shi which, which means stiff corpse which the Chinese used to refer to their own tradition of the undead. Um, and the Jiang Shi are very different creatures from the Sang Shi. And the Sang Shi stories are very much a recent development and very much came out of Western influences, Western narratives like zombie films, um, comics, TV series. And I think Archer's story really shows this in that he, he engages in dialogue with a lot of Hollywood tra- uh, cinematic traditions, in particular zombie films. And it's a bit of a fanfic to Max Brooks' World War Z, this story, as we, we can see that with the continued, continual reference to Brad Pitt. Um, so it's so many things. It's so many things. For sure. I was thinking as you were, as, as you mentioned, the influence of... Um, with the Western genre on this story, it's, I mean, we've, we've effectively said this already, but I think it's worth teasing a bit more um, that the Western genre that is the influence here, the zombie genre, and that's basically yeah. a film genre. It's, if, if, I mean, if you could probably do a whole podcast series looking at all these different monsters who all have their own little corner of one part of the horror genre. And it's pretty true to say some of these monsters have conquered or invaded or occupied, or they're lurking in uh, only movies or only written literature, or they're heavily on one or the other, or they're in both. So like, if you're thinking of uh, vampires, they're in both. I think it's fair to say there's a lot of in- the input into that little category on the page and on the film strip. Zombies, there definitely are zombie books, like you named World War Z, but it's probably telling yeah. if you ask people what's World War Z, the man on the street or the zombie on the street is going to say it's a film, which is fair enough because zombies, I think, are mostly they're in that they're in that corner, the film corner. Yes, that's by far the more influential medium of the two. They yeah. do appear in comics and in books, but the zombie genre, in terms of Western tradition, yeah, definitely film is 
is most influential. I don't know if we can pick that apart, but I think it's an interesting thing to. And I know, I know, we said we shouldn't color uh, readers' views of the stories before reading them. But if you want to, if a reader wants to pick it apart on a second reading, could be fun to look for how much is this a riff on cinema, not just a particular kind of uh, story that exists in cinema, but how's how's the written word doing some things? How's it? Putting into words things we're used to um, processing visually, and things. I mean, I'm getting I'm getting far yeah. too obscure here, but um, a film moves at its own speed. You don't control the speed you consume it. Well, you could play at half speed or 1.5 speed, but basically, films move at their own pace. You can't pause and reread a line over and over again. But think about it. Yeah. On a page, you're free to do that, and that changes the game totally. So, if readers want to overthink things, that's one way I'd suggest doing it. I don't. I don't have a question there for you. Um, do you want to say anything else about about the intertextuality, or shall we go on to the next question? That's a really interesting point you made there. Um, of course, stories are meant to be. Uh, fiction is meant to be read from beginning to end without stop. But in as a book, you can the reader can read it however however they like. And I suppose if a story is really good. Then it does make you want to read it from beginning to end without stopping. But yes, um, he really does riff on a lot of um, zombie, not just zombie film traditions, tr- zombie film tropes, but Western, but a Hollywood cinema. I mean, this, the the story does parody a lot of um, the the heroic Hollywood film tradition, for example. Mm. Um, in the in the dialogue between the the two characters in the middle of a fight, um, it breaks a lot of the fourth wall as well. Um, so I think I might be going off the point. Yeah. So I think it's fine. To move on. Let's move on to the next. Yeah. Next. Yeah. It's okay uh, to go a little off point. Um, yeah. You you made a good point there. The action scenes. We can buy a guy being cool, firing his machine gun on a screen. It it's just doesn't look really cool on the page, so it, it's very ripe for for parody. You're you're totally right there. Um, on on the topic of rereading things, um, I do do that quite a lot. Reading translated Chinese stuff for the podcast and, and for fun, and both at the same time wow. for sure. How'd yeah. How do you get the time? Uh, indeed. How'd you get the time to? Well, I suppose when I mean rereading, I mean if I see a sentence, I'll reread the sentence. I I don't read many of the stories twice. Um, but I'm just looking at one right now. It's this. It's already dusk, but the day is long in the summer of the seaside town, and the sky show still shows a serene indigo on the clear and crystalline sea. A moored rowing boat is bobbing, now sinking, now afloat. A lot of stiffs hover aimlessly around the shore. As as much as I've talked up the story as being silly and fun and fourth wall breaking, yeah. it's got some really great pieces of prose, and this is. This is where I'm going with my next question, because I find this a really pleasant read, and you mm-hmm. know, obviously praise for that goes to two people, Ashwa for putting together the text, and the translator yourself for creating the sentence. Well, not creating, but translating and formulating the sentence I just read into English.、Um, so I wanted to、Thank、ask you. you, what do you think, as someone who had to get into, not get into, and not pick apart? But someone who had to get very familiar with Atwood's prose, at least in this story, what do you think about him as a writer? I really like those parts too. 
Um, and there's there's this Chinese literary convention called Jie Jing Xie Yi, expressing inner feelings through descriptions of the landscape, which I guess is um, kind of universal, but particularly prominent in Chinese literature. And it's and it really stems all the way from classical Chinese poetry and prose, and and is still a very popular literary device, literary convention in Chinese fiction today. So you'll find in the collection, whether it is a YA story or um, the grittiest of thrillers, or a zombie story with black humor like this one, there are these really lovely descriptions of the natural environment, which have been really nice to translate. And it's really a demonstration of his dynamism that Archer can do parody, um, the sort of breaking the fourth wall humor that um, comically undermines some of the battles. And he can do tension and, of course, also lyrical parts like this one. I think he's a really interesting writer. So part of what I wanted to do with this book is to highlight so, so to, to redress the gender imbalance in Ke Huan in particular, it is notorious for um, being male-dominated as a genre, um, although things are improving um, slightly now and we're getting more female voices coming through, both in terms of in the com- um, female voices in the community as well as female writers. But also, what I'm also interested in is um, gender non-conformance. So what first appealed to me about Archer's work is that um, there's a softness to the male voices in his stories, which I really like. And I think that's present in the, our protagonist in Hui, um, who is a very brave and courageous character, but also um, very romantic and very open with his expressing his love and affection. Yeah. So there's a softness to his male characters, which I like, which isn't found in a lot of the works of other male writers. Um, and I think this is what makes him unique in a genre where um, up till very recently, um, hard sci-fi is so the, the, the kind of there's a predominance towards hard sci-fi, um, not only featuring it in stories, but focusing on it. And to some extent in, in some works, there's a sort of um, lack of, um, there's a story in some stories, you find that the science and the storytelling don't blend together very well. You can get that sometimes and think Archer is a writer, is a male writer who can do this very well. And he, and it's unusual to find a male writer who openly says, I write soft sci-fi. So, so I think he's a very interesting contemporary voice in the genre. He is um, quite a young writer and what I wanted to do, apart from featuring the history of the last, you know, some featuring stories that reflect the history of the last 30 years of development, also to feature some new voices like Archer, so uh, post-90s um, writers. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see what he does um, for sure. As a writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that was a, th- a thing I liked about the story too, that we have um, 
uh, a male character who's um is is not a a cartoon at all but has real feelings is open about them does his best to pursue them and the idea of yeah not being being gender non-conforming perhaps listeners who hear that yeah. phrase might think of people who are non-binary or are some not strictly on the gender binary and that's certainly a really important meaning of that word but i think there's a more mundane way that that applies to the lives of maybe almost everyone is how much do you either follow the line of or try and swerve from what's expected of you or even just a tendency in yourself speaking from my own experience through a lot of my life i thought the more kind and gentle i am the better it doesn't matter if there's some stereotypical ideal of male that's a bad stereotype i shouldn't be like it and there's other times maybe more as an adult facing tricky situations where i thought well the best way to get through this is by in quotes being a man so being a little bit more stoic and risking being an asshole and then other times i think no i was right first time it's better to risk being gentle and being a pushover but to bring back a word i used earlier dexterity is a great way through that you can if you're smart about how you navigate these gendered things um as a man that's right you can be both and i think <laughs> the character and the writing display that really well and if he wasn't such a dexterous writer maybe he couldn't pull it off exactly i mean you can be gentle without being weak and you can be tough without being you know um Horrid. an arsehole yeah. <laughs> yeah. so yes um i don't think any gender uh, any character traits are behavioral traits are specifically aligned to any gender mm. it seems to me very much a part of our social programming i mean there are there are more um, there are a lot more kind of more macho characters in the story, in this story, as it is, for example, the captain of the, the in the human camp and the professor, um, for example. And in contrast, our hero is, is very strong, but ultimately he just wants to save the girl that he, the, am I giving too much away? <laughs> he just wants to... <laughs> um, you know, he he's doing things out of love, not out of, you know, a desire to dominate the world as, mm -hmm. as a, you know, or to, you know, take over something, you know, to, to attack some. Yeah. Um, so, yes, the, I mean, it's 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 in, in a way it's a closer, like you're saying, it's a closer subject to us, to us all than it seems. Because, sure. you know, gender discussions could be mm, confined to, I mean, to the academic arena or to those who are, those who identify as, as queer or, you know, non-binary. But it's, it's, it's actually a lot of the times it's a lot closer to everyone, probably. Yeah, for sure. I saw an old uh, uni lecturer I have who um, he is himself queer, so maybe... Maybe it's more relevant to him, but I saw him commenting on someone's post on Facebook saying um, gender gender stinks. We're just used to the smell. I don't know if I agree completely, <laughs> but the idea that it's sort of everywhere, whether you like it or not, and in different ways, seems true to me. Yeah, it's definitely everywhere because it's such an art artificial construct, really. Mm. And and uh, yeah, so going back, going back to the question. Back to the text. Yes. Um, 
So part of what I wanted to do in this book is to, because I'm always interested in gender nonconformance. So here's a story with um, a male character who has a softer side, but then I also have in my collection a story that features a very, probably the most gun-toting, gung-ho male hero who um, just wants to kill all the robots in his way to get back to his little girl. Mm. And that's written by a woman. So I I really like that. (laughs) And these two are uh, some of the youngest authors in in my book. And I think it's important and really interesting to show readers that this is now what's coming out of China. This is the kind of Kehuan that's coming out. For sure. Now. Um, reading some of the stories, I'm I'm seeing the author's names or pen names just in their pinyin and their alphabet spellings. And yeah. to be honest, even if I did see the Hanzi, the Chinese characters for their names, I would not know if they were generally masculine or feminine names. So for some of the stories, I thought, hmm, this one reminds me of some of the short stories by the younger female Chinese writers I've read, but whoa, there's violence, there's this, there's that. So I can't, my stereotypes aren't helping me here. Is the offer going to be male or female? Is part of the, it seems silly to say, but it was part of the, um, it, it was alongside trying to find out what happens in the plot by reading. By reading to the end, I'll get to Xue Qing's little note and then I'll find out if this is a male or female writer. Sounds silly, but that was my reaction as a reader. That's a really fascinating point. Um, in in Chinese, in the Chinese, um, in the Chinese pseudonyms, you can still kind of tell whether they're male or female, but mm. in the romanizations, you can't. So not only are the readers in the dark about where the story comes from, they're also in the dark about the gender of the author. That could mm. be a very interesting reading experience. Yeah, like looking looking through the names, I'm trying to think out of the authors I didn't already know or imagining I didn't know them, would I know based on their um, romanized names, whether they're male or female? And the answer is no, except for Anna Wu, but that's cheating because that's her English <laughs> name. That's right. Um, yeah. Our next question is about um, your your role as the translator. Just doing one question about this, but mm. I'm sure there'll be plenty, or at least there'll be there'll be something interesting to say. Um, and it's, it's a straightforward one. Did the story present you with any particular joys, challenges, or uh, even struggles? Yeah, all of those. Re- I really enjoyed translating it. Um, most of it was really fun and felt really natural. It was, it was almost like I'm reading the story in Chinese here, readers, I'm telling you, here's a story in English. Yeah, it, it flowed very well. Most of the stories are between, a fifth, you know, something like 8,000 to 15,000 words or maybe 20. This one is twice as long. I wouldn't have picked something, I think, for an anthology if, you know, it didn't work even at that length as a, story, as a piece that's part of a bigger um, body of work. Yes, yeah, so the challenges were quite interesting in a way. Um, they were definitely a challenge now that I, I think about it and break it down a little. So most of it was to do with uh, the linguistics 
because in this story they the Sanshi have a language of their own. Um, mm. Due to rigor mortis, their throats and wind windpipes have you know rotted away, um, or they've fallen out, so they can't speak. But they use sign a sort of sign language with their hands or arm or what's what whatever's left <laughs> of their body um, to communicate. And the challenge was conveying this language. And of course, that's the sign language is another different one from Chinese to English, from Chinese and English. Um, conveying that, and and we talked about intertextuality. So many different genres, kind of all melting into one story, um, making it all fit together, and kind of pulling together two sides. Very with very different points of view, the humans and the the sangshi, and kind of making because each side had their different had their slang to the other almost species. They're different species. They see each other as different species, as even though the sangshi used to be humans. So um, with very often with um, kind of subgroups. You'll find that they have this kind of kind of pejorative slang term that they they use to refer to the majority as a kind of coping mechanism, you know. So the the sangsha are no different. So they have, and the humans are definitely in this story. They are afraid of the sangsha. They don't remember that they're once their friends and relatives. They fear them. So it's you know. Pulling together the two sides of very different language and the slang terms they use to refer to each other, the human language, the sangshi language, but also the sangshi have a biological instinct that is different in this story to their higher instincts. So very often they are showing、uh, something completely the opposite in their body language. In their communication, to、uh, in and in in their body language and in their behavior to what they're actually communicating, so it's making all of those things fit together、uh, smoothly. I think that was the challenge. It was quite quite fun as well. Yeah, there's um, I I won't spoil it, but there's um, a <laughs> there's a very surreal scene um where what can I say? Well, imagine I'm I'm I don't know I'm chasing after my friend, but I'm also apologizing for chasing after him and cheering him on.、Um, that might sound like I'm spoiling it, but it's much funnier than that. Yeah, I can imagine why that would be a funny,、uh, not a funny one, an amusing and also mind、um, mind vexing thing to get into. Nice, not just translating it. I'm sure. A translation would be easy enough, but making it work as a piece of、um, writing for readers—that's got to be a a puzzle. And but in other ways, it was really worth doing because that's what makes it such a captivating story. That there are so many different layers to it, apart from the plot and what happens. And in a way, you can reread this story、um, again and again and find. Different things that are amusing or enjoyable about it. So,、uh, 
Um, so going back to the translate specific language, um, linguistic translation, um, although it probably has something to do with the, the essence of the story as well. Um, so going back to the slang terms that humans and Sangshu refer to each other. Um, so, so I got a very, I got a sense at the very beginning reading this story that the humans really don't like the zombies, the Sangshu. They fear them, they kind of think that they're gross and disgusting. So, which is why I came up with the term stiffs. Um, I think it conveys a kind of disregard for their dignity, not even referring to them as in a proper term, but, you know, as just stiffs. Um, and it sort of, I think it, it, it then, it stuck because it really worked, that term. And then I also wanted to distinguish between zombies and stiffs because we are dealing with a very different tradition here from mm. the Western zombie stories. So then in terms of the, the, the humans, the stiffs, the Sanshi um, towards the humans, they have their own slang terms. They're called breathers, call them breathers. So a lot of linguistic challenges, but quite interesting to work into. Um, I think the subtext of the story making the language, the English language version kind of convey what the, the Chinese um, aims to convey, but in the way that works in English and in terms of, in a way that works in Western culture as well as in English. For sure, yeah. So the um, tiny invisible references that build up the way we, we I say we, there's an implied we there that you could dig into, but um, the way that people read stories, for sure, it, it's it's going to have a challenge for any translator. But as, as 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 you can imagine, it comes up on this show a lot that for Chinese to English, mm -hmm. and presumably for Chinese to just about any European language, there's some particular puzzles there for the translator. Yeah. Um. If if you feel we've done Ashwa and um, Fire of the Other Shore justice, I'm ready to jump into the more miscellaneous fun yeah fun questions okay okay yep. cool oh my and it's right on time because my bluetooth headphones battery is is, is running low <laughs> so we'll see if if we make it okay. to the end without them dying and becoming zombie headphones so uh first miscellaneous question it's the word of the day is there a uh, chinese word of the day you'd like to suggest um that either is from or represents nicely flower of the other shore so word of the day for flower of the other shore would be sang shi sang meaning uh, to do with mourning or uh, deceased shi meaning corpse i think it is an ex the distinction between um jiang shi which the chinese a term that the chinese use to refer to um the jiangshi of their traditional um, law, so the traditional Chinese undead monster, the jiangshi, and also to Western zombie films and uh, zombie fiction, 
depending on the context. So Sanshi is distinct from both of those,、um, and it's important to remember that as a genre, the Chinese Sanshi genre is very young, and although it does interact and it has been influenced from、um, Western traditions of zombie stories, it is very much a thing of its own, and it. So I think it's very interesting to see what comes out of China, what what comes out of Chinese writers on this genre. So I would love to see it introduced into the Anglophone world and becoming current as a word in as an English word, Sanshi. So there's our word of the day. We've we've already sort of analysed it, so no need to pick it apart. Like a piece of decaying flesh with a flower growing in it, <laughs> any more than we need to.、Um, so let's go on to the next silly question, an interesting one, given how much of this of our main character's thoughts are about consuming and eating. This is a, a, a drinking-based question. If if Flower of the Other Shore were a drink, what would it be? And I, I say this to all the guests, but there are two、um, stern decrees here. You can't just say a really strong coffee. Because I had that like right off the bat from multiple guests, and a cocktail. The next one, this has a a degree of leniency. You can say a cocktail of everything if you can tell me what's in the cocktail, but otherwise, anything goes. And if you can't think of the drink, you can do a food. So I would say it's a bit like a noulong, which is my favorite type of tea.、Um, it's certainly got a kick to it, but not too much. It has、um, a very complex,、uh, complex aroma and taste. Tastes slightly bitter but sweet, and has the roasted nutty aroma, almost like a coffee, roasted coffee type aroma.、Um, it is fragrant. The color of the tea is often described as blue, as opposed to、um, green tea or black tea or yellow tea.、Um, A quite a、um, kind of rare novel concept, blue tea, and I think the color blue is very、um, prevalent. Kind of pervades the story in terms of when you think of the flower. Yes, and and furthermore, oolong tea is supposed to have euphoric、um, properties. So it's a bit like this story, which is more than the sum of its parts. Okay. End of the second patch. Yeah, it's it's good that we got another tea because, of course, there's so many kinds of tea in the world. Many of them are Chinese tea, but we've only had a few episodes where someone for their their if the story was a drink named a Chinese tea. So that's that's great that we've got another one in the bag.、Um, next question in this miscellaneous section, it's bringing things back to yourself and your work.、Mm-hmm. Are you working on anything just now? And are there any works or websites or other places where we could point the listeners? Apart from working on the last, having just about finished the last iterations of、um, Synopticon, I do have a nice surprise for for the readers when the book comes out. in In the book that's not currently disclosed. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, and then. I 
there are articles, there are always um, articles, whether they're on my website or, or other platforms. There, I have I contributed an essay on um, China's internet literature um, for the Tor collection called The Way Spring Arrives, which will be published in March 2022. Yep. And other than that, I'm plotting the next, um, the upcoming project, so the next couple of books really at the moment great it's like you said the the way spring arrives all the authors and i believe the translators too are female or non-binary right. so in other words yeah. no men are in there and i try i try as a man so yeah i missed <laughs> that key point <laughs> well what i wanted to do i really wanted to spotlight um female voices in Chinese science fiction, but I really didn't want to sort of um, almost create a marginalized space. Uh, you know, I did consider maybe just featuring um, female writers, but then in the end, I decided to just go for the stories on the merit alone. So mm. kind of uh, whether it's a good story, whether it's unique, in a way, it's, the perspective is unique, or the way it's told, and it turned out to be kind of half-half, but just over half is uh, female voices. So I think that's quite nice, in a way, for, for sure, that, yeah. to, that to happen. It shows that you know it's completely untrue that that women can't do cipher that you know <laughs> women can't do kuhuan or you know. Yeah, or sci-fi. Yeah, or, sure. or soft sci-fi is in any way less appealing or less science fiction than hard sci-fi. Yeah, for sure, and it shows in your collection because there's soft sci-fi and hard sci-fi by um, the female writers in there. And yeah, looking at the male writers, so we mentioned how Ashwe in the story comes across as not trying to be a hard man. And sending up some of the those hard man action tropes, whilst also, I guess, at the same time, giving you the reader some of the fun of of the action and stuff. But then the the other male writers we've got are an interesting case too, because there's one of my faves, Han Song, who there's lots oh, yeah. of things we could say about his writing. But if there's something <laughs> stereo, not essentially male, but a male sort of stereotype one type of guy the incredibly depressed the universe <laughs> is meaningless this is grim but i'm gonna sort of grin and bear it and chuckle kind of um way of dealing with life and the universe that's really evident in terms of the universe the story in here and i've was hugely into that and then we have another version another genre of male writer maybe genre of guy um mm -hmm. return of adam by wang jing kang who i think is the oldest author in the book and that's that one, right yeah that one i don't rush towards and embrace but it's interesting to see it it's um yes it definitely very much is there to show that um it yeah it very much demonstrates um the the kind of uh stories that chinese sci-fi have developed mm. from really yeah and i mean it is challenging its own own way you know it challenges confucianism as a kind of mode of behavior for the chinese whether that's you know the really the 
absolute best thing that it's made out to be. Um, but, yeah. but there is there's quite a bit of there's quite a bit of um, chauvinism. Is that a word? Yes, there's quite a lot bit of chauvinism in it that I wasn't quite comfortable with. But then, but then when you read on in the story, you kind of see ah right, he's kind of being defeated by the characters sort of I think I used foisted on his own petard mm. um, in 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 the in the story in the story guide so so it's not black or white it's not a simple thing to just no. condemn or cheer it's and it's not an author's manifesto either it's 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 his creative work yeah yeah what I'm trying to say is that if you have a chauvinistic chauvinist character and his chauvinism is used against him really and that's that's what it's there for rather than I think that's what it's there for rather than um let's say a, a condoning of this kind of thinking yeah yeah for sure. you can you you can leave this in or you can take this out I don't mind <laughs> I'll keep I don't it in mind. I'll keep it in we've had spicier conversations on the show but the listeners are, are smart they understand that it's, it's it's fiction. Fiction is complicated. And uh, next next question. We were getting dangerously serious, but now we're getting onto just like the um the 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 final final questions. Basically, the further reading questions. I would like to go through just quickly what I'm reading, if that's okay with you. No, you should. Yeah. Um. So I've got this really bad habit where I start several books. I've got several books on the go and and when I read a story that's really read a novel that's really I really enjoy um when I read a novel that I really enjoy I kind of am hesitant to finish it so when I just get to when I get to about the end I would maybe start another story and leave that one for a while before I finish it but at the moment I've been reading some essays on Chinese science fiction, but also dipping into De Wei Wang, Wang, Wang De Wei's, um, yeah. David Wang, mm -hmm. yeah. a new literary history of modern China, which is really fascinating um, because it deals with literature from, you know, all kinds of literature, not just um, um, prose, but poetry and even um, things like fanfic and, old legends um so yeah that one I, I enjoy dipping into um but I always have a treat read that it's just um fun for pleasure and at the moment it's Rebecca Rowan Horse's Trail of Lightning which I I really really enjoy because lately uh, re recently I've been catching up on um works by other writers of colour and female writers is something I have had to catch up on and not really read a lot of before. I've grown up um, on a diet of um, the English literary canon, which is mostly white and a lot of them male. So yeah. it's, yeah, <laughs> there's been a real delight to catch up on these works and I've been coming increasingly interested in kind of non-Western-centric 
views, kind of sort of culture, cultures outside of, say, America or Europe. Um, what was so the name of the author been, again? Uh, Rebecca something? Rowan Horse. Rowan Horse. Okay. Uh, and the novel is called Trail of Lightning. I think it's one of a series and um, it fuses a post-apocalyptic world with um, native Indian mythology and beliefs. Right, cool. So American in a sense, but not not that European sense, the Native American sense. That's true, yes. In the, in the geographic sense. It is sense. American, the, the, the original yeah, American. Yeah, the OG, yeah. Yes. Okay. So I suppose, yeah, non-Anglophone is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, okay. I'll, I'll stop nitpicking um, the geography and I guess... Or we could be here till Christmas. Yeah, That's a lot, lot of geography out there. Um, I'm trying to think, what am I reading right now? I'm reading the next book I'm doing on the show, so I won't spoil that for listeners, although I've told them on Twitter if they want to go look there. But I guess I'll just say um, thanks for the fantastic chat. Always fun talking about Chinese sci-fi, but even more fun talking to such a, a thoughtful translator with so much to say. So thank you, Xueqing, for coming on the show for the interview. Thank you, Angus. It's been um, a real pleasure chatting to you and I really enjoyed being on your show. And the interview is over. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed that one, uh, hearing from Xueqing about her, uh, just the story that she translated. I know I enjoyed doing the interview. So yeah, I'm sure you enjoyed listening to it. So the show is almost over now, just time for the plugs. And the one I really want to emphasize today is listener feedback. If you've got your own thoughts and you don't just want to keep them to yourself, then please do let me know. If, 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 if someone's bothering you about the show or if there's something you really love about the show, or there's something, if there is something that you would like to see more of or indeed less of, I'd love to know, to be honest. Please, please do reach out and uh, tell me. Tell me what's on your mind. And that sort of leads very naturally into the next blogs where you can do those things, the social media, the points of contact. So I already mentioned the Twitter and the Instagram, uh, my personal Twitter, at Angus Likes Words is where you can tweet or DM me. Uh, you can DM me on Instagram too, at uh, Trutrific, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. That's the podcast's Instagram account. If you want to share thoughts um, with other fans, we have a Discord. There's an invite link for that in the show notes. I mean, I've said this a couple of times before, the Discord's pretty quiet, but um, occasionally people do sort of pop in with thoughts to share with everyone. And of course, it is another place where you can DM your, your host and give feedback. I've had a couple, a couple of listeners have done that. Maybe they didn't want to share it with everyone. Um, that's great too. If it's critical feedback or praise, I want to hear them both. So yeah, that is all the pluggy plugs. Um, I won't I won't spend whole minutes talking about the Patreon and the other ways to support the show, but there's zillions of bonus episodes on Patreon. Well, not zillions, but there's more than there are episodes on the main feed, so there's a lot for you to enjoy on there. Right, I've got that out of the way, the, the grubby money stuff. So I'll just now tell you the best thing you can do for the show, which is spreading the word. Tell people who you think might be interested. Share the links online. Uh, do things... Uh, I was about to say mouth to mouth. How, how disgusting. I should have said word of mouth or um, whatever the internet equivalent of word of mouth is. But anyway, yeah, tell your friends, tell your teachers, tell the zombie that is chewing your leg 
and simultaneously falling in love with you. Until the next episode, or until we next talk on your favorite social media platform, Sai Jian.